Join me, if you would, this morning in your Bibles in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 7. We have been working our way through this book of 1 Samuel, made it through the first six chapters, and today we take up chapter 7. As we prepare to hear this, listen as I read God's Word. I'll read this chapter, then pray, and then we will dig in and see what God will teach us today through this passage. 1 Samuel chapter 7. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came, and they took up the ark of the Lord, and they brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge over the ark of the Lord. And from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth uh, that are among you. Direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and, and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. And when the Philistines heard the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not enter the territory of Israel, did not again enter. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities of the Philistines that they had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. And Ekron and Gath and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace in Israel, even with the Ammonites. Samuel judged Israel all of the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all the places. And then he would return to Ramah, for that was his home there. And there he judged Israel and built there an altar to God. Let's pray and then begin to consider this morning. God, once again as we gather here this morning, and as we come together in the name of Jesus Christ, it is with the desire that as we're here, we draw near to you. 
God, the songs that we have sung, acknowledging and exalting and praising you, Lord, we're, we're so thankful for the truth and confidence that those convey and the reality of who God is in this world that we live in. Lord, we thank you for passages even such as this, so many rich and wonderful old passages, so too frequently passed by in these days. But we are confident, God, that every part of your word is inspired, it is infallible, and it is given, Lord, for our warning, for our instruction, and our correction. God, we pray that the time that we spend in this, this morning looking at this passage, that you would be glorified, indeed that our hearts would be challenged, that we would be further humbled and encouraged and provoked, incited in our zeal and love for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as we take up this chapter, uh, we know that quite a few things have already gone on, and we won't go all the way back to the beginning, but just to see where this begins, there had been that battle between Israel and the Philistines, which the Philistines won, and they actually took the Ark of the Covenant. When the Ark of the Covenant was temporarily in the land of the Philistines, God was pleased to wreak havoc upon them. Tumors and rampant mice in the field, tremendous misery, and they tried the best they could to send it from city to city, hoping that it would stop, hoping it might be coincidence, only to find out everywhere it went, things got worse. It just seemed to continue to escalate until finally they said, forget it, let's send this thing back to Israel. And miraculously, God brought it back on untrained animals and delivered it right into Israel. As that Ark of the Covenant that God had given them to represent His presence among them came back into Israel, the people were presumptuous. They, though it should have remained covered and not looked upon by people's eyes, really indeed only by the high or chief priest once a year, the people were presumptuous, they looked upon it, they, they thought as long as our hearts are right, as long as our hearts are sincere, we can do it our way. What they found out was, do it God's way. It's not that your heart doesn't matter, but it's not your heart alone. You've got to engage your head. You've got to encourage your ears to hear. Because if your heart is really after God and for God, then you're going to want to do what pleases Him and is acceptable in His sight. And so that, that sad town of Beth Shemesh also themselves faced attacks. God brought a pestilence against them and many people there died and so they like the Philistines are like we also have to get rid of the ark and so they called the people of Kiriath-Jerim to come and take the ark away and that's where we begin today they came and they took the ark away now please note this is a challenging time in the history of Israel they're is God has not yet selected Jerusalem as the city to set his name upon. He has not yet uh, brought about the creation of that temple structure that would be permanent. And so you had what was the tabernacle, the tent 
of the meeting where they would come and worship, and it would be shifted from place to place from time to time. It would be sometimes in Shiloh, sometimes in Gilgal, and uh, because ultimately at that point God had not chosen a place for his name. So as this came back, we understand that in all that had been destroyed, now they didn't know what to do with the ark. Things had been destroyed, demolished, everything was in ruins, and so they just say to themselves, let's send this ark back there, just to the next, ultimately it was the next and nearest city. And so the first thing that we look at is they take it to that city, and it says really there in verse 1, they took it to the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated his son, Eliezer, to have charge over the ark. Now here's one of those things that, I, that is so rich about God's word. We begin to stir with all kinds of questions. Who is Eleazar? Where does he come from? What's his background? And all of these kinds of things that somehow tantalize us and get us wanting to know what it was. And here's the answer. We don't know. We simply don't know. We know he lived on a hill that Adinabad did, so he was likely a wealthy individual. There was a sense among the people in those days that the high places were the more consecrated places. Even among the children of Israel, with the influence of societies and things, those superstitious tendencies still crept in. You know how that works, right? If I could just, if I'm on the hill, I'm a lot closer to God than the guy who's down there, right? And so, I mean, it'll take less time for my prayers to get there. I mean, there are still places around the world that build prayer towers. You know, we could just get up higher than everybody else, then, you know, maybe my prayer will be heard over the others, I'm so thankful our God is not limited like that, right? We could be in the deepest, darkest, dank dungeon, buried in the heart of the earth, and God hears us clearly and precisely as he would the man on Mount Everest. Makes no difference that seeming proximate location on the earth. That, those ideas are all caught up in men, but it does seem like they were trying to choose what would have been in their mind the holiest place around, and they sent it there. Now I will note this, Eliezer, the name of the son that was consecrated, happens to also be the name, are you guessing? Probably not. Aaron's third son. Moses' brother Aaron, who was the first chief priest, uh, Nadab and Abihu, the first two sons, wicked fellows that God then destroyed by fire. The third son, who then became the chief of the Levites, name was Eleazar. It was common among families to name kids and grandkids and descendants after grandfathers, and so much speculation has gone out that this was probably a Levitical family, and it was probably in the line of Aaron. Is that a possibility? Yes. Is it a certainty? 
No, I don't know. It would make sense. It would be ordinary uh, that we would think it might be a sanctified family. But what I want you to notice here is it goes into a house. The man who's going to attend to it was consecrated. So nothing was taken for granted. Cautious care was there. Even it seems his attending to it was not going to be in the same manner of high priests. We don't have pilgrimages here. We don't have people coming and doing sacrifices like they did when it was at Shiloh. So he basically becomes the, the, the watchman, the guard, the keeper. He's going to make sure it's there. He's, going to, he's the only one who's going to basically go into that room where it was and keep things clean and orderly. And this is Eleazar. All we see, and in this, in this time, between when the ark comes back, it's brought to Eleazar's house. They take care to make sure that he's carefully consecrated. It tells us this at the end of verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. The word lamented there can have a nuance of complained. Where is he? Why are we still facing these problems from the Philistines? What is going on? Why has God turned against us? Why has God given us over to our enemy? And what's amazing about that is that's so natural. Where is God? Why is he not doing what I think he should be doing? What they don't seem to be asking themselves is, are we doing... What God has called us to do. Are we walking in his ways? Are we worshiping him in earnestness and faithfulness? That, that, and so here they go. 20 years. It took them 20 years as a people under much problems and persecutions. Where, where they're still thinking, yeah, the problem's with God. The problem's not with me. The problem's not with what I'm doing and where I'm going. The Somehow God's not doing his part. Where is he? Why, God? That's the wrong way to address those things. But the world often does that, don't they? And, 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 and we, from time to time, may still have that tendency. It, and they should have early on recognized, well, all of these things have come upon us, particularly in the old covenant they lived in. All these things have come upon us because of our sins. And so the way to make it right is to turn from our sins. Turn from our own ways and obey the ways that God has set before us. We see such a long time lamenting there for the children of Israel. And uh, 20 years. Remember, Samuel had been a little boy. And so... During these 20 years, Samuel gets to grow from being a little boy into being a young man. We get a sense of something of the ministry of Samuel that's developing here when we look at, at these events unfold, beginning in verse uh, 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, Samuel beginning that work of being a judge was, was himself, and we'll see it later, the sense is that he's going throughout Israel. And he's telling all of the people, the reason these things are happening isn't because God is failing. It's because you are failing. 
It's not because God is doing wrong. It's because you are doing wrong. Return. Repent. Come back. There's no good in that way. All of the ways of men lead to destruction. They will ultimately not get you where you want to go. And so what's, what's going on here is he goes through this ministry. And one of the things that's so helpful here is he gives a picture of real repentance. It's a significant repentance. He's not wanting them to just return where they might return with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. He's not wanting them to just all go through the motions of the sacrifices in some form of outward observance or, or legalistic, meticulous detail. He's wanting and, and declaring that turning to the Lord is going to be a total turning of your inner man that affects all that you're doing on the outside. Not just the fullness of your heart, but the fullness of all that you're about. And so he begins to, to unfold those things. And he really says that in verse uh, 3. And Samuel said to the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, in this context, we're gonna see, we see three simple things uh, revealing real repentance as declared here by Samuel. One of the things that we see is there is a recognition of sin, a recognition of unworthiness of unfitness. You actually see when the people come together, look what they cry out in verse 6. As all of the people come together, they say to the Lord, we have sinned against the Lord. There is a conviction of sin, a godly grief, a recognition of, I don't deserve to stand before you, God. It's not, God, you would be lucky to have me. You, you would be very, very blessed to have me on your team that's not that's not repentance repentance comes with the recognition and and most if not all of us here have experienced that we've been walking in the way of this life walking uh, our own path following our hearts as it, it chasing after the world and along the way God began to show us this isn't right this is not good the guy right next to us is continuing in that path and saying, this is good. I like it. And we're right next to them saying, no, it's not. And, and, and there's some change that's going on where there is a conviction and this guy is still saying, this is what I want. The world and all that it has. And, and your heart is beginning to say, the world has nothing. We've sinned. I've not, I've gone after all that was created and not looked to the creator. I've gone after all that was made and forgotten the maker. What, what a waste all of this is. What unworthiness, what unfitness. The fact that God might even hear me say, I, I, I'm sorry, I've sinned, I've done wrong. I, I don't even deserve to get close enough to say that, you might feel. Here they come, and there is this recognition. There is indeed this confession of sin. 
But it's not just a blah, 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 I did wrong. Because that's easy to do, you know. Some of us who in God's providence have had multiple kids in the same home, maybe there will be an altercation between two of them. And we will be able to ascertain in, in discussing with them, one of them, was, their behavior was most egregious and instigating. It was their fault, right? And so we might often say to them, look, what you did was not right. I want you to apologize to your sister or to your brother, right? So as to not point fingers at any of my particular children. To your sibling. And here's how it would often go. I'm sorry. You know, if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done this, but I'm sorry. And you get the real clear sense how much sorriness is really there. You know, uh, there's, no, there's, no, there's no real genuineness. It's not, I truly wish I had never done that. I don't ever want to do that to you again. It's not that. It usually carries an undertone. Beware, it's coming again next time you do, <laughs> next time you do this to me. That, that, that sense is it. That's not real repentance. Real repentance is when God so grips the heart that you recognize no, I don't want this. This is not good. But not just, it's not just a thought or a feeling. Paul in the New Testament speaks of the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. People in the world can feel bad about things they've done that have hurt people. If they have any humanity or sense of conscience, they can feel bad in those ways. That's a little different, though, than the conviction of sin that doesn't only say, this has hurt others. And ultimately, these things have hurt myself. But they've seen sin as something merely beyond themselves and others, and they know that they have offended a holy God that what they've done was was rebellion despising and they don't want to do that anymore and it, we it's interesting because in this uh, Isaiah says it this way I mean I love the way we have sinned against the Lord not just against others but against the Lord in Isaiah 45 verse 24 it says this only in the Lord shall it be said of me are righteousness and strength to him shall come all and be ashamed who were incensed to get him we we come to the place where we recognize this righteousness worthiness that's only in him and everyone comes to him comes to him with with some measure of i'm ashamed of what i am who i've been and then we have that privilege that as God unites us in faith to him that he counts his own perfect righteousness the righteousness of God in Christ counted to us so that those who were unworthy are now declared worthy those who don't deserve to be accepted would and will in Christ be accepted who come in real repentance that real repentance when it is a godly work upon the heart will yield itself in clear fruit, clear, visible aspects. Let's see this, the first thing that Samuel speaks of here. He says, if you are, if you are, it's a, it's a question, if you are returning to the Lord with your whole heart, 
then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth. You know, I'm not going to emphasize here, put away your Ashtaroth. Because you have no idea what that means for the most part. Most of us, you know, it was a favorite goddess among the people of those days as they were adopting different, different gods and going after other things. You know, when, when you're turning to God, it's not God and. It's God alone. It's not God and this one and God and that one. It's not the God of my own making and my own mixture and my own mind. It is God alone. And so, so real repentance will that has been wrought in the heart by God will necessarily manifest itself in a repelling or a removing of those things that are not God's, that are not pleasing to him. Like, I don't want to have anything to do with that anymore because it is nothing. It is vain. It is hopeless. A removal will follow, will be really the sure fruit of real repentance. But note this, just removing things does not make you right with God. People can turn over a new leaf, make a change, most everybody makes a change on January 1st of every year, right? This year, I'm doing this. This year, I'm not doing this anymore. At least for a week. Right? And then next year on January, I'll remove the same thing from my life. <laughs> And 20 years later, as they lamented, you're still removing that same thing every January, but for a week. Some of us have had that kind of and or seen that kind of experience, that, that, that limitation. So it's not just about removal, but removal that is born out of a real repentance and a recognition of who God is and who I am. And so it, we, we even see that same kind of thing when People were coming out to be baptized in the early days of John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 3, this is what is said to those who are coming. It says in Luke 3 uh, verse 7, He said to the crowds that came to be baptized before him. Now you may find that as crowds are coming, this is the worst sermon ever. I mean, it's discouraging. Here they're coming to be baptized, to go through this this activity this what might be in their mind a ritual that will make them right with God and that's not acceptable here that they would think of it as, as a ritual that would somehow cleanse them they needed to understand the significance of what that identifying thing meant and so he he he, he addresses the crowds coming out probably we wouldn't hear this today we'd hear Thank you for coming, you wonderful people who have greatness in your future. That's probably what we would hear. In Luke, he says to them, which I'm not necessarily saying to you, he says, you brood of vipers. Not complimentary in any way. Um, unless you're thinking, oh, that's powerful. No, that's not, that's not the sense. He's thinking venomous and wicked. Further, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
This baptism is not just a ritual or a rite. It is symbolic that you are fleeing from the wrath to come that comes upon the world who is apart from faith in Christ and that you are identifying and looking to the righteous one who is coming after and looking for that one who would be savior of the world. He says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then he says in verse 8, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones, Abraham. Noting to them this, repentance, real New Testament spirit-wrought repentance isn't going to be a repentance that does not bring about the total transformation of the individual. That work of God that brings repentance and faith is an utter and absolute renewal. It's a new man. Not the same as you were before. As as the scriptures say, a new creation in Christ Jesus. He tells them, you can't just come and go through the motions. You can't just come and say, we have sinned, we're unworthy. If this is really what you're doing, it's going to show. You're going to, you, you've got to bear fruit. Repentance isn't, oh, I remember when I repented. I mean, right now you wouldn't know it. But I remember when. That's not the way the, the repentance granted of God works. Uh, the repentance granted of God brings about in our lives deeds, the fruits consistent with repentance, and we end up being able to say this, I remember what I was. What I am now is not what I was. Praise God also what I am now is not yet what I will be. There's more to come. But grace has changed me. Grace has made me and moved me. Um, not only is there a, remo- a recognition of sin and a recognition of God, uh, that it's against him and he's offended, not only is there a removal or a putting away or a separation from things, there is also a resolve or a direction, a commitment or establishment to something. A separation from and a service to. And this is the way that Samuel says it here. Not only put away the foreign gods and Ashtoreth from among you, but direct your heart to serve the Lord and serve him only. This is what you need to do. Direct your heart to serve him and serve him only. A separation from serving yourself and serving other gods and other things. And and now a moving to, a dedication to serving him. These will be the visible, clear fruits of real repentance. One of the things that we see as we even the these same fruits of repentance are born out even to us under the new covenant. Indeed we'll see they were unable to achieve this. What they could not do, the grace of God works within us. But listen to what it says for example in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 and following. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you that the apostles came in Paul and his team and they preached the gospel in Thessalonica and God through that gospel transformed people that's we often use the term conversion or converted 
because it's not what it used to be. It's been changed, our convertible. The top was up, the top was down. It's changed from how it was before. Here's the, he, he says, the reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols. So you got, the, you got those same things, don't you? They separation from, you were doing that, you were going that way. You turned to God from those idols. And then look what it says next. To serve the living and true God. You were doing and acting in this way for yourself and for them and for the world. And now you're this way in service and love to him. This is the change. And to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Um, even when we begin to look and, and see how these un, uh, things unfold, uh, in 1 Peter, it says it like this in 1 Peter chapter 1, as he writes to the elect of the dispersion, those who are believers spread abroad in different places due to persecution and, and difficulty. In 1 Peter 1, 2, he says, after speaking of the elect who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, look, in sanctification of the Spirit, the Spirit has ultimately separated you from the world unto Christ separation, sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ. This is, this is such a wonderful thing. The Spirit of God not only separates us, the, the saving grace of God not only separates us from the world and what we once were, but we now by grace become obedient from the heart and we serve a living God. We serve our Savior in love. Not, not a yoke of burden or difficulty or drudgery, but of delight. I serve a living Savior. He's in the world today. That's kind of idea. Further, listen to what the, the scripture says. Uh, for obedience to Christ, for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Paul then in 2 Thessalonians says this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you. So Paul as an apostle, always praying for the saints in Thessalonica, that God may make you worthy of his calling. Wow. What a prayer that is. That, that you would be more and more, by grace, like someone who would seem worthy or fit of that calling to be accepted to God. Wow! That, that is an amazing prayer, isn't it? That, that we would be, that God would make you worthy, that you'd be in that process of being conformed unto and like Christ more and more, less and less like what you were and more and more like what he is. And then he goes on, may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good work and every work of faith by his power. He is going to put in our hearts that desire to live and serve in such a way that what does the rest, does verse 12 say? So that the name of Jesus would be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God. So it pushes us forward, this grace. And you know, it's different than the world thinks of grace and so different from the way religions often speak of works. 
Because these things are not done, these dedications, devotions, and commitments, so that God will accept me. It's not done that way. It's done out of love for him so that he may be glorified in me. So that he may be, he may be set before the people as holy, honored, worthy, so that he might receive praise and glory and honor we so love him so long for him so live for him that we devoted to that not that we may gain acceptance because our acceptance is all and totally in who jesus christ no other way of acceptance no other hope but nonetheless our hearts are stirred with a desire that he might receive the glory that is due to his name here's the difference in this passage since we're no longer under that old covenant here's the difference in that passage it says this if you repent remove these things and resolve these things then he will deliver you that was the old covenant if you do all these things then he will deliver you And what would happen to them? Well, they they would muster the best they can, but the best they can would only last a brief season. It wasn't enduring. It wasn't a transformation at their core. But the difference is this. Uh, We learn by their constant failure that, that when we hear those kinds of commands, it isn't, all right, I can do it. I can, no, it becomes this, God, deliver me God convict me God help me to remove these things from my life God put such firm and godly resolves and desires for what the scripture calls works of faith not faith and works but works that flow out of the faith that God has produced in our hearts the the difference is 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 really um, so different then it was If you do this, he will deliver. Now it is, when he delivers you, you will do this. This is what happens when he delivers you. Such a wonderful transformation. When he delivers you, as the gospel of grace comes, what happens like the Thessalonians? When he delivers you, you turn from those things. And you turn to God. You remove those things and those ways of life and you turn to God because he's delivered you from that captivity and he's delivered you and separated you and sanctified you for a life. A life in Christ as Ephesians 2.10 says we are a new creation in Christ Jesus And, and that new creation does what? It walks in good works that were prepared for us beforehand because that's who we are in Christ as he was we are made new and we walk in those ways the delivered person does it because of his delight and desire for the glory of God this is still can still be a danger in this day and age when people are striving to do what they do and obey how they obey and order what they order in order that God might accept them in order that God won't reject them they've missed they've missed Christ and they've missed grace but then you can, have the, you can have the other side that says, no, just kind of just roll. There's no just kind of roll. One of the beautiful things that, that uh, I mean, the, the scripture tells us in terms of the working, 
let's see. Oh, I love Titus 2.14. Speaks of Christ and it says, He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. So what happens? When he redeems us, he removes us from and effectively by our desires in our heart, we willingly remove ourselves from lawlessness. I want that no more. I'll go that way no more. Because he's redeemed us from all lawlessness. Listen, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And why, is that, why are we zealous for good works? Because we're zealous for his glory. That's why. And, and it's, a, it's, it, it, it's a dangerous slope when you miss the ultimate goal. Uh, if you're not doing it with a desire that he would br- you would bring him glory, what you're going to find is that the obedience and the resolves is not a delight. It, become, it, it becomes to some a sense of burden. That's not the way that grace works. But oh, the grace that transforms us. And so then when, when we are people like in Titus 3.8, And it says, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable to the people. We hear those things and we say, what? Amen. I will do that, that my Father might be glorified, that my Savior might be seen and known through me. Oh, the delight to walk, the delight to obey, the delight to yield, the delight to serve, that's grace. That's a grace that the world doesn't know. The world doesn't see. Now with regard to that, in regard to them, we we see also there was in this passage that they would face a truth test. Whether they were or were not truly repenting from their hearts. And their truth test, at least at this momentary time in history, was going to become as they gathered together in their, at Mizpah in their act of obedience to, to make those changes, to confess their sins, it tells us this, uh, as we come down to verse seven. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid. So the, the moment there, you, 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 you can almost see this picture. We've done it. We've heard you, Samuel. We've repented. We're, 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 we're going for the Lord. We're doing it right. God brings the Philistines against them, and, and, and what are you gonna do? Here comes the problem. And in the, in the mercy of God in this season, he turns them the right direction, which becomes such a wonderful teaching tool to us. Because what happens as this truth test comes? Are they going to flee to their own homes? Or are they going to say, wait a second. The whole reason we were coming back to God was so that the problems would stop. So... So the, now, and now as we've gathered together in this act of devotion, it's become an act of war. Oh no! Well, they don't do that, thankfully. Now, the people were afraid. You know, I will say that we don't need to fear the world or fear man. What can man do to us? But if we're honest, 
we get nervous from time to time. We get fearful. We, get, we, we face struggles and the own realities that we're not yet perfect. You know, and so that's why we still have the consolation of the word that gives us encouragement and strength in those times of trials. It's not like, oh, I got this. On and on, we need that renewing of our minds with the words because we are still but men. And here, here's what happens. They gather together and they come to attack and, and praise God at what their response was and what a teaching thing it is to us. Really, look at verse eight. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. At least in this moment, they recognized what? Their only hope was in God. Well, they would have known that because they're, they're still under the oppression of the Philistines. They're losing almost every battle that takes place. And so here, Samuel cry out to God do not cease to cry out to God we see here this this pleading for unceasing intercession and Samuel took a lamb a whole burnt offering and he cried out to the Lord and the Lord answered him now I would say this now Samuel was a judge he wasn't even technically the priest or the high priest or anything like that uh, he was just a man I might even proffer this further. They could ask Samuel to cry out to the Lord, but here's an idea, people. You cry out to him too, right? Don't just ask somebody else to cry out for you. You cry out. You cry out to the Lord, but somehow they recognized that they, that they felt like they needed some kind of intercessor. Someone who would stand between, and I must say this, we as the people of God in the struggles and challenges and trials and tests of the genuineness of our faith. Where do we find that hope and strength to face those things? Where do we find that overcoming of fear? Well, like they did, our trust and our hope is in the Lord. But unlike them, we don't look to Samuel. And I'll go even further. Unlike them, you, nothing wrong with asking and you should encourage people to pray for you and let us enter into prayer together. But I will say this, you don't think that if you get the pastor or you get the reverend to pray for you, that's just gonna fix everything. But what's beautiful is, though in that day they felt like they needed an intercessor, maybe there's a sense in which they thought, you know what, Samuel's a little more worthy than us. You know, we're just coming back after 20 years and Samuel, he, he's our godly man in the, in the kingdom. But brothers and sisters, what do we have? Yeah, we have Christ. It's not a man like any other man. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25 tells us what? Concerning God. Consequently, he, that is Christ, is able to save to the uttermost, completely. Why? It tells us concerning Christ. He's able to save those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here's the difference. Samuel made that intercession and he made it for the duration of that war and he would repeat intercession uh, uh, throughout his days but his days came to an end. It will tell you at the end of this chapter, he judged them all of the days of his life. 
but we have a better intercessor than Samuel. Who's our intercessor? Christ, who ever lives in his eternal life to make intercession for us. So when, we, when we're looking for ho- strength and deliver us, and we're thinking, how do we deal with this? How do we uh, overcome? How do we persevere? The fact is, God's grace is more than sufficient. We're able to come to him and find help in a time of need. So the test of truth comes. They commit themselves and tell Samuel, we need unceasing intercession. And then God breaks out in this occasion in an answer to prayer so nobody might think it's coincidence with an absolute cacophonous confusion. He takes and he thunders from heaven a mighty thunder in such a way that the whole attacking army is thrown into confusion. What's going on? What do we do? do? Now, here's the children of Israel and all that's, that's going on and they know exactly what they're supposed to do. Go get them. But the others, they're confused. They can't gather their thoughts. They can't gather their mind. God has has thundered in such a way. And to me, it's also remarkable. This thunder, the effect of it for one group of people, it emboldened them to fight a battle. The other group of people that heard the same thunder, it confused them and caused them to be squeamish and run in fear and doubt. And so this comes and it tells us they were thrown into confusion and they were defeated before all Israel. And so we, we, we saw Eleazar, we saw all these events unfolding and now we look, the battle is won and verse 12 says this, then Samuel took a stone. Now this is a unique thing but it was common among the children of Israel. Often they did so when they crossed the Jordan into the land, they would often take stones and make memorial stones. So that people would from time to time come by and see a stone in an odd place where that stone wouldn't seem to normally be there. Why is that stone there? And someone could say, ah, that stone is there because that reminds us when God brought us through the Jordan on dry ground. That stone is there to remind us of the great victory that God has brought here. And in this particular one, they took the stone and they they put it in the place between the cities in which this battle had taken place and this thunder had let known and they called the name of this stone in English Ebenezer. It's actually two words in the Hebrew and the second one's a conjunction so it's Eben Haezer. But it basically is a statement that says stone of help or stone or rock the help. Now when you see that, uh, note this. Not for a moment is Samuel saying, this is the rock that delivered us. All right, He's not given the glory to the rock. The rock is simply a memento that they would see that and it would bring to their mind the mighty deliverance that has come to them from God. So even when he says stone of help, he says it with that statement um, right there in uh, verse 12, which I'm going to recite according to the King James. It says, hitherto the Lord has helped us. You know, Or till now, but hitherto just sounds more powerful to me. 
right? Hitherto the Lord has helped us. Oh, what wonderful, wonderful words. And, and, I, and, and we think about this idea, God helped them. Oh, what a great help indeed it was. But I don't have a problem with the Philistines right now. I don't have a problem with the Ammonites right now. My problem is with this, this, this struggle, this temptation, this work problem, this relationship. My, the, these are my struggles. And again, we find the book of Hebrews speaks to these things. In Hebrews 4, 15 and following, it says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Listen closely. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. The confidence is in what? It's in him. It's not in us. Our confidence is in him and his sympathy and his mercy and his grace. That's why it's called a throne of grace. It's not, it's not the throne of works. It's not the throne of me. We draw near to the throne of grace with what? That we may receive mercy or find mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. They would look to that rock and say, God has helped us. We look to Christ and say, God has helped us. But we don't, here's the beauty. Hitherto, till now, God has helped us. The stone spoke of what God had done for them. We have a living Savior that, that we keep, we, when we look to him, we don't merely remember the help, but we now afresh what? Find help and grace in a time of need. I want to note this also for you, brother and sister, believer in Christ. You will face times of need. We are not delivered from the struggles and trials of this world. Times of need, they're a-coming. Help is in Christ. Strength, grace, and mercy is in Christ alone. Look to no other rock there is no other rock. There is no other God. There is no other refuge. I know not any other. And further, then we might also see something such as this. In Hebrews 13, verse 6, God's word says this. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There's nothing. The Lord is my helper. So we, we, we sing a hymn at times that will say, here I raise my Ebenezer. And that makes no sense to most people, but some of us have got it, and I think more of us even now. Here we, we, we look to and we raise and we exalt our stone of help. But we're not looking to that stone sitting there between Mizpah and Shen. We're looking to the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for us. We're looking to the one who, according to his words and with surety of confidence, is coming again for his own. We're looking to the one that when we pass from this earthly tent, we stand in the presence of him. What amazing and blessed realities that's why it says for us uh, example in Romans 8 here's the difference between uh, what what they faced and what we faced God has done what the law could not do do this 
and I will deliver you. And they got temporary deliverance from active obedience from, from their enemies, but not ultimately the deliverance from sin and unto for salvation that they truly needed. God did what the law could not do. Why could the law not do it? Tells us in Romans 8, 3, weakened by the flesh. Because here's the point. Men can't keep the law. They can't perfectly do it. So here it was, and they couldn't do it. Well, if I've got to keep the law in order to be delivered, what do I do? Oh, no. But God did what the law could not do. And what we could not do, weakened by the, our flesh according to the law, this is what he did. God has done by sending his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh, he sent his son. The very son of God came in flesh and blood like, like this, born of a woman, born under the law, fulfilled the law. Brought the law and its condemnation for those of us who are in him to an absolute end. Where we don't fear wrath, we don't fear judgment anymore. Because we are in him. Christ has done by God what the law and flesh could never do. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh. Here's the reality. When God does this for us, it changes how we walk. It changes how we live. It's no longer, if you will do this, then I will deliver you. It is now, when I deliver you, by grace, you will live and walk like this. Isn't that a great salvation? Isn't that a great Ebenezer? A great stone of help? I tell you, uh, our Christ far more consecrated than Eliezer could ever be. The events of our salvation and his intercession far greater than Samuel's and that battle won that day. Our stone of help, our Ebenezer, Jesus Christ, far more magnificent and far more meaningful than any momental and memorial. He is the living Savior who saved us. Let's pray. Lord, as we uh, just close out, we're just so thankful for your word. It is amazing the great salvation that is ours in Christ. Lord, over and over again, and even as we would see in chapter 8 next week, hear these same people then, weakened by the flesh, fail and turn away and stumble and fall. God, we, we know that we still struggle and stumble from time to time, but we have a stone of help, an intercessor, Christ. Lord, we pray that you would empty us of any sense of our, uh, our own pride and our own self-worth and self-sufficiency and help us to find all of our glory, all of our worth, all of our hope, all of our help indeed in Christ who alone is our Savior and Deliverer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.